So if you would open your gray books to the back, uh, we're gonna read together Article 7 of the Belgic, um, page 821. And as you get that open, just wanna say hello. Um, I come all the way from Waterloo, and uh, my husband and I have lived in the area since 2001, and I recognize many of you have even worked together with some of you um, because our kids go to Laurentian Hills Christian School. And uh, it's great to worship with you um, from this vantage point as opposed to being in the pew as I sometimes have been. So since uh, Pastor John invited me to come and asked if I wanted to participate in this series that you're doing, I, I agreed. And so I've been following along in, uh, online to hear what uh, Pastor Carl and Pastor John have been saying. And so uh, for those of you who have been on vacation or haven't always been here in the evenings, I thought we'd just recap. Um, the first article starts out by saying, who is this God that made us and who we worship? So it talks about the attributes of God. And then the next six um, are about the Bible. And so number seven is the last one of the articles specifically about the Bible. And so you've talked about how it was um, inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so is holy and divine. You've talked about it having authority for regulating our life, for founding our faith, and for growing our faith. And you've also talked about how the books of the Bible have been canonized, pulled together through this spirit-directed, centuries-long process of pulling together which books were going to be considered inspired by God. 66 books distinguished from the Apocrypha and other uh, books that have value but are not considered God-inspired. So now we get to Article 7. Let's pray together, and then we'll read it. Father God, I give you thanks that we have many holy words to read that you have given us your scripture, words that help us understand who you are, words that help us understand who we are, and words that help us understand how we can serve you. Thank you also for giving us words such as those Guido de Bray wrote, words that help us understand what the Bible is telling us. They're not as authoritative, and yet they're useful. And we pray tonight that uh, you will guide me to speak clearly, and that through Guido de Bray's words, we will hear your voice speaking to us, and through me, we will hear your voice speaking to us, challenging us, inspiring us, convicting us, filling us with renewed love and desire to serve you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. So then, Article 7, page 821. The sufficiency of scripture. We believe that this holy scripture contains the will of God completely, and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, not even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add to or subtract from the Word of God, this plainly demonstrates that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. 
Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time or persons, nor councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God, for truth is above everything else. For all human beings are liars by nature, and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule, as we are taught to do by the apostles when they say, test the spirits to see if they are of God. And also, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. So for the reading of Guido Debray tonight. So the sufficiency of scripture. Sufficiency is not a word we use very often. One way to think of it is as adequate, good enough, the minimum requirement. Having three children, I immediately thought of kids who want to have screen time. Okay, says mom, but you have to clean your room first. Oh, okay. Ready, mom? Is this enough? Did you check under your desk? No. Okay, now this? Is this good? No, deal with that pile of clothes. Okay. Now? Well, it's far from perfect, but it's sufficient. Good enough. Adequate. You can have your screen time. There's another way to think of sufficiency. I grew up listening to the Canadian singer and songwriter Raffi. And he has a song that goes, All I really need is a song in my heart, food in my belly, and love in my family. Is there anybody here who could sing along with me? <laughs> Some people may be listening to it with their toddlers right now. So, yes. So with us, a different sense of sufficiency. All I really need, the heart of the matter, enough. And I think this is more the way that Article 7 is talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. So it begins by saying, we believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely and that everything one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. This is a really the same thing that the Confession says in Article 2, when it says that God's Word reveals as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. In other words, the Bible is sufficient. It's all we really need in order to know two things. The means of salvation, the way to move from separation from God back to a reconciled relationship with God, and God's will, what he desires us to do to glorify him. The Bible at its heart is a grand story that tells us of a good God who created a good world, who loved it so much that even after it rebelled against him, he came to redeem it. It's a grand story that shows us first how we as fallen human beings can return and can experience reconciliation with the good God who made us. And second, how we can respond with gratitude to his salvation. So Gideon Bray wrote, the Bible 
is the only thing we need for knowing salvation and for knowing God's will. This was a dangerous claim for him to make in 16th century Netherlands, that region that's now Belgium. Why was it dangerous? Because the king, sovereign over this region, the king who had power to give life and take life, was a fiercely loyal Roman Catholic. King Philip II of Spain and all good Catholics with him believed that two other things were just as valuable as scripture for knowing salvation, church tradition and church teachings, including the declarations of the Pope. There wouldn't have been much problem if church tradition and church teachings and the Pope and the scriptures had all been saying the same thing. But as Martin Luther and other reformers discovered when they started reading the Bible for themselves, there were discrepancies, major discrepancies, so that the church was creating rules for salvation, its own rules for salvation. And it was articulating God's will in a way that wasn't consistent with the Bible. Sometimes we talk about how the reformers describe those discrepancies with five solas, five Latin phrases that start with the word sola or only. So here they are, very briefly. So first, the Catholic Church on one side stressed that faith needed to be supplemented by acts of obedience. But the reformers said, no, it's by faith alone that we're saved, sola fide. Second, the Catholic Church expressed that it had power to offer salvation through its sacraments, especially baptism, penance, and the Eucharist. But the reformers said, no, it's through Christ alone that we experience salvation, solo Christo. Third, the Catholic Church that people needed, said that people needed to earn God's favor. The reformers said, no, we receive God's favor by grace alone, sola gratia. Fourth, the Catholic Church's teachings ultimately pointed toward all manner of human efforts to gain salvation. And the reformers said, no, to God alone belongs all the glory and all the credit for salvation, soli deo gloria. And then finally, as I've already said, the Catholic Church elevated their own teachings to the authority of Scripture. And the reformers said, no, the Bible alone has the authority for salvation, sola scriptura. My guess is that as you continue through the Belgic series, you're going to return to some of those solos, solas. But Guido de Bray here in Article 7 starts with sola scriptura. He writes a little farther down, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, referring to Galatians 1, ought to teach other than what the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. And a little farther down still, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, such as the Pope, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of times, or persons, nor councils, decrees, or official decisions, all of that that the church was teaching above the truth of God, for truth is above everything else. So scripture is all we really need. Scripture is the final authority when it comes to God's will and the means of salvation. 
In the rest of this article, Debray gives two reasons for saying this. First, he says, simply because the Bible tells him so. In Deuteronomy, when Moses gives the people of Israel God's law, he reminds them, see that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. And then in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the Apostle John writes something similar. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Strong words. And so Debray writes, since it is forbidden to add to the word of God or take anything away from it, it's plainly demonstrated that the teaching as is, without addition, without taking away, is perfect and complete in all respects. Further, in that last paragraph, Debray quotes John again when he writes, we reject with all our hearts everything that does not agree with this infallible rule, as we are taught to do by the apostles when they say, test the spirits to see whether they are from God, from 1 John 4. And also, do not receive into the house or welcome anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching, quoting 2 John. In that quote from the last paragraph of the article, Debray uses the word infallible in passing, but it's a key word to our understanding of Scripture. The reason Scripture is sufficient, the reason that Scripture has authority, as Pastor Carl talked about a few weeks ago, is that it is infallible. The word infallible is even less likely to come into our conversations, at least my conversations, than the word sufficient. Fallible is from a Latin word, falere, that means to deceive. The words fail, fault, false, fallacy, they all come from that same root. So fallible means being capable of failing or being false or deceptive. To be infallible then is to be never failing, completely trustworthy, always true in matters of salvation and rule of life. Because the Bible comes from God and God does not lie, we believe that the Bible is true. As Pastor Carl put it, the Bible is an expert on life and faith because God wrote it. The other reason that Guido de Brace has for saying that scripture is sufficient, more authoritative than any other source, is simply that humans are less than perfect. They are fallible. Guido de Bray writes, for all human beings are liars by nature and more vain than vanity itself. You can hear the polemical edge in his voice here. He had no love for the Pope or anyone associated with him. One commentator today puts it a little more kindly. Our thoughts, even our best thoughts, reflect self-interest. The result, that commentator continues, is that even the most edifying lit literature is not finally to be trusted. That's not to say that it has no value or even that it's wrong, just that it can be trusted only against a certain measure, and that measure, finally, is scripture. So, to sum up, we believe that the Bible is all we really need 
because it is written by God, who is completely trustworthy. Everything else is written by human beings who are not fully trustworthy, not even the Pope. So we've talked about what sufficiency means and why Guido de Bray has emphasized it in his confession. Even though rejecting the supreme authority of the Pope and of the church tradition was one thing that ultimately cost him his life. What about us? When we read this article today, our first reaction may be to highlight how it opens up room for what the Bible is not sufficient for. It is sufficient for knowing the means of salvation. It's sufficient for knowing how to glorify God. But it's obviously not sufficient, we might say, to teach us about reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's not sufficient to teach us about geography, or history, or biology, or psychology, or anthropology. The Bible is not, for example, a textbook that explains everything about how or when the world was created. We need other books, other research, other teachers to help us grow in our understanding of all of these areas. Even in the two areas where the Bible is sufficient, salvation and God's will, other human writings are helpful. And traditions, too, can be considered valuable. What this article clarifies is that God's word itself trumps all human teachings and traditions. God has given us much wisdom and insight through confessions and creeds and sermons and devotional materials. Just think, the fact that your congregation is studying the Belgic Confession and the fact that you pay preachers to prepare and give sermons on scripture every week demonstrate that you value human words, and rightly so. Similarly, the church has developed many traditions over the centuries that we still follow. The fact that most churches observe a day of rest on Sunday rather than the seventh day a week is a tradition. Or how we carry out the Lord's Supper is another tradition. The fact that the CRC has historically had two worship services on a Sunday is a tradition. Or that other churches also have a midweek or more than one midweek service. And of course, these traditions have value. To say that scripture is sufficient is to say that teachings and traditions are valuable only to the extent that they are consistent with scripture. This is why Article 6 of the Confession says that of the Apocrypha, which Pastor John addressed a few weeks ago. It says that they're not God-breathed, but, says Debray, the church may certainly read these books and learn from them as far as they agree with the canonical of books. I came upon a contemporary example of this principle this past week. I was in Chicago for the Global Leadership Summit at Willow Creek Church. Perhaps, was there anyone here who was in Cambridge at Forward Church watching the simulcast? So it's a leadership summit for Christian leaders primarily, and most people, um, it's in countries around the world, um, I think they said like 150,000 or maybe even more um, Christian leaders and other, um, other people watching. So Willow Creek's lead pastor, Bill Hybels, began this summit 23 years ago because he believed that Christian leaders must take full advantages of the accumulated teachings of every leadership generation that has gone before them. 
He believes that leaders in business, law, government, whether or not they are Christian, have much to teach about leadership. And so the summit featured presentations by Christian speakers, such as Gary Haugen, who is the executive director of the Christian-based International Justice Mission, and Sam Adeyemi, a Nigerian pastor with a megachurch. But we also heard from Marcus Lemonis, who is the host of the CNBC reality show, The Prophet. And we heard from the Facebook COO, Sheryl Sandberg, and from Laszlo Bach, who until recently was an executive at Google. So all of those people had really valuable things to say. But Heibels is adamant that whenever leaders conflict with the word of God, God's word is the final authority. From time to time, he says, leadership lessons from the secular world do not translate well into the arena of kingdom building. And as ministry leaders or Christians, whether we're leading or not, we must remember that our operating values and our ultimate marching orders come from only one book, a book that is God-breathed, spirit-inspired, perfect in its content, unchanging in its ability to transform lives. When the demands of discipleship articulated in the Bible collide with human laws of leadership, read my lips, he says, defer to the Bible, look to the Bible, trust the Bible, and obey the Bible every time. One example of how the CRC officially places this same priority on the sufficiency, the authority of scripture, is that all Christian Reformed office bearers, elders and deacons and ministers, commissioned pastors, are required to sign the covenant for office bearers. Who has signed the covenant for office bearers? It was changed in 2012, so before it was called the form of subscription, and it's actually quite different on this respect. But now, as of 2012, it says, we, the undersigned, believe the holy scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the inspired word of God, which proclaims the good news of God's creation and redemption through Jesus Christ. Acknowledging the authority of God's word, we submit to it in all matters of life and faith. So the covenant, which many of you have signed, begins with scripture as our ultimate authority. We as office bearers are committed to that. The next paragraph speaks of our agreement with the creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed. The third paragraph mentions the confessions, like the Belgic, and that we desire to be in agreement with them as far as we can be. Then there's the contemporary testimony, our world belongs to God. And the last paragraph mentions the church order, the rules of the Christian Reformed Church. So it starts with the ultimate authority very deliberately, and then paragraph by paragraph, the authority of the documents declines. And in every case, the statement is, we will agree with them only to the extent that they agree with the word of God. And if something is found to be not in agreement, then we will seek to change those documents. As we all know very well, staying loyal to scripture does not remove all challenge or controversy or disagreement. Just think of how Protestants, once united with that cry, sola scriptura, have divided over and over again through the centuries into countless denominations due to differing interpretations of scripture. Even within the CRC, among those who agree that scripture is the ultimate authority, 
sharp disagreement arises on issues such as women in ordained leadership, homosexuality, war, creation care, to give only a few of the recent examples from our last 40 years of history. But we need to stay together, and we need to keep reading and praying. As one theologian points out, the Bible is infallible, but we're not, and we need a great deal of humility. He says, understanding what God is saying to us in the Bible is an ongoing task of every church in company with the universal church of all ages and places. I met a woman this week at the Leadership Summit. She was actually a fellow student of mine, but we hadn't had a chance to meet yet. Leah was born to parents who weren't Christian. As a seven-year-old, she happened to be looking over the fence and she saw a bunch of kids playing on a church lawn. And so she snuck into the Sunday school to attend. It was through attending that Sunday school that she found out about God's love, found out about Jesus' sacrifice for her, and began to find out how to serve this God. She became a Christian. She remembers reading through the entire Bible as a 12-year-old to find out more about that God who had loved her and saved her. And she highlighted all the important parts. She didn't have it to show, my, show me, but she said, I highlighted almost every word. She was very sheepish. I look at that Bible and there's hardly a word that's not highlighted, she said. She was sheepish, but I kind of think that's an amazing picture of what the sufficiency of scripture could be like for us. The Bible is all I really need. And I'm going to savor it like honey, like Psalm, 1, Psalm 19 says, savor every word, because each word reveals my God. Just imagine, this book, this book is God's book, a message from the God of the universe, the God who made us, who loves us, who lived and died and rose for us, who desires to use us in his world. This God gave us words to tell us about himself. He gave us words to teach us about ourselves and what he wants us to do. He gave us a story revealing how he saved us. He gave us a story that speaks of his love and justice and power and grace on every page. It's a gift. And it should be a comfort that we can hold in our hands all we really need. What is God's will? How are we to be saved? This Bible holds the answer. We can read and pray and hope and discuss and reflect and discern together how our stories fit into this grand story and maybe highlight some of the words. And then we can share it with others. It's all we really need. Amen. Let's pray. God, our maker, God who redeemed us, God who is present here with us through the Holy Spirit, it seems kind of incredible that the Bible that we probably have multiple copies of in multiple rooms of our homes, 
is your message to us. And that it's all we really need to understand how to be saved and how to serve and glorify you. I pray that you will help us this week to savor it a little bit more than we have. I pray that you will fill our communities with humility so that when we disagree, we will never disagree on the authority of scripture and that we will commit to seek together that unity that you desire. I pray, God, too, that as we come to savor your word, that we will be overcome with your love and your grace so much that we want to share it with someone else. In the words that we say, in the actions that we do, fill us with your love and your grace. And remind us that you have given us all we really need to do what you want us to. In your holy name we pray, amen.